Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Prior authorization has been one of the top administrative burdens amongst dermatologists for years. Physicians are frustrated and patient care is negatively impacted as costs and delays continue to increase. There are many reasons for this, which include lack of interoperability between EHRs and health plans, lack of standard documentation requirements, and so much more. Are you feeling the burden of prior authorization? This morning, I, Dr. Kang Wen, and I'm Deputy Chair of the Health IT Committee of the AED, I'm joined by Dr. John Barbieri, a Deputy Chair of the Drug Pricing and Transparency Task Force. And we're going to be talking about prior authorizations and our own experiences. Welcome, Dr. Barbieri. Thanks for having me, Dr. Wen. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm just going to go straight to it. You know, this is an important topic that affects so many of our practices. I'm curious about your own experiences with prior authorization and how has the burden associated with prior authorization changed over the last, uh, let's say, five years of practice for you? And how has it impacted not only the physicians in your practice, but also the staff? Yeah, so I started my residency in 2014, and just in my short time in dermatology and practice, I really noticed that I feel like that burden of prior authorizations has been increasing, and the data kind of supports that feeling as well. Uh, when we surveyed clinicians, dermatologists in 2017, 92% of them reported that prior authorizations are increasing. When we repeated the survey in 2020, they reported that they spend three and a half hours a day on prior authorizations, costing their practices over $40,000 a year. And 30% have had to hire full-time staff specifically to help address prior authorizations. So I personally have been feeling the burden of these in my practice. And it, it seems like many other dermatologists are feeling this burden as well. Absolutely. Yeah. If the data you shared indicate that it's a huge, huge burden on our practices. That's, uh, I have to echo the same sentiment for our practice here based in Dallas at an academic practice. And what sort of uh, changes has this sort of burden prompted in your practice over the last five years in order to uh, stay on top of the prior authorization process? Our practice has dedicated staff to help handle prior authorizations. And that seems to be a trend that's been occurring across the country in dermatology practices. There's some data from the Beth Israel that was published in the past year describing their experience creating a, a prior authorization workflow that they feel has improved the ability for them to care for patients and also reduce the burden on clinicians. There's uh, Utah, Carlisi and colleagues published a study where they actually looked at their prior authorization group and kind of the results of that group where they found that the cost for prior authorization were about six to $15, depending on what it was for. And even with some prior authorizations costing more than the total reimbursement for a visit for that practice to handle, which, which again kind of gets at the burden. But I think our practice and many others are going to this model where we're hiring dedicated staff to address prior authorizations, which one highlights the incredible burden of these, but also reflects the importance of trying to offload these activities from clinicians so they can focus their attention on caring for patients. I'm curious about that. Can you tell me a bit more about how the staff work at your practice, the kind of staff you have, the number of staff, as an yeah. example? It varies because sometimes people come and go. We have about three to five staff at any one time in our practice, which, which has about 40 clinicians in it who are dedicated solely to prior authorizations. And we've subdivided them into specific types of prior authorizations. So some might handle prior authorizations for topical acne products. Others might handle 
prior authorizations for psoriasis biologics. And that allows them to develop some experience and expertise with the different insurance plans in the area so they can ensure that we have the most effective and efficient handling of prior authorizations when they're needed for our patients. I like that. So there's actually specialized staff who tackle various sub areas within dermatology. Yeah, we have enough size for a practice to do that. For other practice, I would expect some may just have one person who's handling all of the prior authorizations or one staff who's spending part of their time on that. And so I do like our system where we're able to really have people develop some expertise and specialization in handling prior authorizations, which I do think makes the process run smoother. And we lean on those staff to help make sure that we can provide patients the best possible care and complete their prior authorizations in an efficient manner. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard of different uh, practices using different types of staff. Are you incorporating nurses, medical assistants, or other types of staff into your workflow to help with prior authorizations? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Our practice is predominantly using really administrative staff to handle these, but I certainly am aware of practices that might use a pharmacist even, or nurses, or other clinical staff to help address prior authorizations. Excellent, excellent. And when dealing with patients who require a prior authorization, how often do you see that there's a delay in care because of the prior authorization process? Unfortunately, this happens far too often. For me, as someone who takes care of a lot of patients with acne, one of the most frustrating ones is for isotretinoin, where mm. sometimes patients might even miss their seven-day prescription window because of the prior authorization process, just creating logistical delays that, that then cause them to not be able to pick up their medicine and for women who are starting their first prescription of isotretinoin, if you miss that seven day window, well, it's not like you can just get it next week. It's you have to wait a month to get it. Yes. So that's a really unfortunate outcome that fortunately in my experience is quite rare, but at the same time is unbelievably frustrating when it occurs. We know that about 45% of prior authorization determinations take more than a week and 17% take more than two weeks. So it's not uncommon for these prior authorizations to create delays in access for our patients. And, and even worse, many times that delay causes patients to simply abandon treatment altogether. Yes. And this is on top of the sort of delays it sometimes takes to get in to see a dermatologist. So have you encountered similar things in your practice? Yeah. My own experiences are very, very similar. You sometimes think that the biggest challenge is just determining what's the best medicine for a patient. You don't realize that um, it's more than just being able to click the button to prescribe it there's a whole series of hoops that you have to get through. So yeah, I have some patients where the prior authorization practice can be as quick as 24 to 72 hours, in some cases a week or two or more. And it really has depended upon the insurance and obviously the type of medicine. So yeah, it's all over the map. And I suspect for a lot of our AED members, it's all over the map with probably an average around that one to two week period, like you're saying. Yeah. Sometimes for me, the, the most frustrating kind of variation of that is when because of pharmacy benefit managers, they've, you know, made a Humira versus Embrel or Cosentix versus Talt's kind of selective contracting deal. And it, there's, um, it reminds me of this, there's this fake sh game show on, on the TV series 30 Rock called Homonym, where they asked contestants a word like scent, and they had to decide which version of scent it was. And it was always the other one. That was like the joke of the show. And I feel sometimes with these prior authorizations, it feels just like that. It's always the other one. If you prescribe Cosentix, Tals is the one that they have in their formulary this week and, and vice versa. And that can be so frustrating because you spend this time counseling the patient, coming up with a plan, only to be told to basically prescribe a similar therapy for arbitrary reasons that just creates unnecessary confusion for the patient. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely feel your pain. That's exactly what has happened so many times. It's just moving targets all the time. And in the case of your own staff, how does the communication work between your own practice and the patients? How do you hear about these prior authorizations and how do you keep the patients updated when moves are made? So I'll often try to be very upfront with patients that when I expect a prior authorization is going to occur to let them know to expect that may happen so that they're not surprised when they go to the pharmacy. Because sometimes pharmacies will tell patients that like your doctor needs to do this paperwork to try to make it simple for them to understand. And sometimes patients interpret that as like your doctor doesn't know what they're doing and forgot to submit something that was required and they get frustrated. So I try to give them anticipatory guidance that there may be this process where I have to fight with their insurer to get the medicine covered for them so that they know there could be some delay from when we decide to start it to when they actually can get it. And then when the prior authorization comes through their office, it goes directly to our prior authorization team who begin working on that and keep the patient updated throughout the process. And then if there is a denial or a situation where we need to do additional appeals, then I'll update the patient and talk about next steps, whether it's choosing a different therapy, having to go through a step therapy process, or trying to purchase something out of pocket. We'll discuss those different options and how to proceed. Yeah, so there's a lot of back and forth. There can be just a lot of communication involved and it can become more prolonged if there's more steps involved, as you're mentioning. What about your practices? How does your practice handle the kind of prior authorization process from when you're seeing the patient assigned to prescribe something to when hopefully they ultimately get that prescription? Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, in our practice, what's kind of frustrating is it's not always obvious if you're going to be hearing about the need for a prior authorization from the pharmacy, from the insurance company, or in some cases, the patient, they have to send us a message or they'll sometimes not know and wait a while before they let us know. And so that first step, it's already variable. And then on top of it, from there, we use our own EMR. The EMR systems have actually evolved a bit to help simplify the process, this uh, although artificial process. So we are able to communicate through the Epic EMR that we use at our own practice. And there's a lot of back and forth. Our nurses are then able to use that system itself in order to submit prior authorizations. And in most cases, they're able to do it entirely through the EMR, not always. And then when results come in, they uh, work with our own staff to notify the patient. In some cases, when it's especially complicated or there's been a particular delay, I take it upon myself to let the patient know and kind of know like where everything is, what's next, because as you were saying, it's, it's variable and it's frustrating and it's very confusing. So yeah, it's a lot of people involved in this circle of communication. I'm curious in your case, do you guys use any of these electronic prior authorization programs or anything like that in order to communicate with insurance companies? We do sometimes use some of these third-party platforms like Cover My Meds to communicate in terms of prior authorizations. Our electronic record is not so great in terms of understanding insurance company formularies or being able to directly complete prior authorizations through the medical record. So it tends to be either on paper through fax kind of things back and forth or writing letters and or through some of these platforms like Cover My Meds. Yeah, that's our own experience. We're fortunate in that our EMR team somehow is able to connect it. We're also using Cover My Meds as well. It does simplify things a bit when your EMR talks to one of these third-party platforms. But what can be confusing is if you're not able to get everything through the EMR, you sometimes have to check an additional website or more in order to see your progress. And then that's on top of maybe having someone watch the facts like a hawk for any sort of results that come in from the insurance companies. So yeah, my hope is for some people out there who are dealing with this, that 
if you have an EMR that can talk to one of these third-party platforms, that might be an option to simplify things a bit. Yeah, and we sometimes our EMR now actually can use GoodRx kind of directly through the EMR, which is kind of oh, interesting. Wonderful. You can yeah. see the GoodRx prices and you can apply the coupon to the prescription when you send it to the specific pharmacy. Although our EMR is not so great at doing prior authorizations, that has been a useful feature because honestly, sometimes the cash price of medicines is not so high for some of these generic things that unfortunately require prior authorizations or get denied all the time. Like almost some formularies now, pretty much every acne medicine is not on the formulary, but many of them can be purchased for a relatively reasonable cost just out of pocket. So I've started to lean more and more on those types of resources for our patients. That's an excellent thing to mention. I too have used GoodRx. I know there are some other competing products out there, some uh, pharmacy kind of clubs in order to lower prices. I've always been shocked, even though I've done it multiple times now, where there's a what seems like a basic medicine that isn't covered. You look on GoodRx and the patient actually ends up being able to save quite a bit of money by buying it just directly without the use of insurance. Yeah, we probably won't get into this, but there's that related issue of clawbacks where patients' copays will be higher than the actual cost of the medicine. And I personally experienced this where you go to the pharmacy, they tell you your copay is $20 for a medicine that just costs $5 to buy. And in some states, the pharmacists aren't even allowed to tell you that because of gag clauses by the insurance companies. And that's a whole nother issue that from an advocacy standpoint, we need to address. But that's really unfortunate when patients, many of whom are paying tremendous amounts for medicines, are having to waste money on things that cost less if they just bought them than what their insurance is charging them for it, which is a real travesty. Absolutely. And I'll layer it on top of that. Prior authorization is a very complicated set of subjects. And then do you see often in your practice that insurance companies are communicating directly with the patient? And if so, have you found any ways of being able to overcome that or to better communicate with patients? Insurance companies often will in my experience, send patients like a, a mail about or, or something by email about coverage determinations. Mm-hmm. It, it usually happens either a bit slower or in parallel to the process we're doing. So in my experience, it hasn't really caused confusion or problems. It's where it just becomes redundant communication with the patient. Yes. So that, that's what my experience. I don't know what your experience has been with, with those kind of processes. It doesn't happen often, but there are cases where the only person that seems to know about a, the need for prior authorization is the patient. Or maybe they're the first to hear before we hear back from any other party. And so, yes, on occasion, I guess you're dependent upon the patient to notify you about the need for of a prior authorization. So thankfully, not that often, but it does happen, which really is a frustrating outcome, especially if you're a patient and you're just sitting there wondering like, okay, I got this letter, like what happens next? So I just wait and they don't know if you're not able to prompt them, uh, they don't know to, to notify you about it. How often are these delays from prior authorization kind of leading to patients abandoning their recommended course of treatment? How often? We we did a qualitative study a few years ago where we looked at acne patients who are primarily non-adherent. So they never picked up their first prescription for their doctor. And 20% of those patients said one of the main reasons they did that was because a prior authorization happened. Not that it wasn't approved eventually, but just that step of, I'm planning to start this medicine. I can't get it. And then for various reasons, they just gave up. Mm. And so we know that happens in our 2020 American Academy of Dermatology survey on this issue, 12% of patients delayed or abandoned treatment entirely because of prior authorizations, many of which eventually were approved. And 17% were forced to pursue less appropriate treatments 
um, from the perspective of their clinicians because of these prior authorizations. So we know all too often that this process itself, regardless of the outcome, has negative impacts on patients with respect to just completely abandoning treatment or ending up on less optimal treatments. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's our experience as well. And it's nice to have some hard numbers to it, just to know the, the scale of it. I guess we can sometimes be so adaptable in dermatology that you just deal with it and you move on so that the patient can get some sort of treatment. Yeah. But those are very big numbers. And it just goes to show that the, the scope, the, the degree of burden from all of this. I mean, the problem is so common that I, I provide patients written instructions in anticipation of things, of prior yeah. authorizations happening or medications not being covered with direct next steps of what to do. And that's something that came out of our qualitative study two years ago was that patients don't like being told if it's not covered or there's a prior authorization, call the office and we'll deal with it. They like to have a plan B in hand when they leave the office at their first appointment. If, if this isn't covered or if there's a problem, here's what I do directly. And so I started to really give patients that guidance. They, I hope they don't ever need to use it, but I know that many of them will where we have a plan B in case our plan A doesn't work because of various insurance challenges that we can face. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. This is something that I'd love to incorporate into my own practice. So in this sort of written instructions, you talk about like other ways of getting medicines or the next medicine that you'll use or some combination thereof. It depends on the scenario, but, but here's an example. So for acne, often when, with respect to topical therapy, uh, I'll start patients on something like adapalene and benzoyl peroxide either separately or just the generic version of adapalene 0.1%, benzoyl peroxide 2.5%. And mm -hmm. I'll say, if this is covered, great. If it's not covered, I have it written down, go buy different adapalene 0.1% over the counter for $20, go buy this benzoyl peroxide product. Now you have kind of essentially the same goal of our treatment plan, but mm -hmm. you've been able to get it in a different manner and it may be less expensive. So I say, you know, if it's more than $20, this prescription, just go buy the over-the-counter versions of them in that kind of setting. So when I can, I try to give patients explicit suggestions about next steps to do in the setting when something's either covered and expensive because they have a high deductible, which is another common issue I, I feel like we're encountering more and more lately, or when things aren't covered or there are delays because of prior authorizations or other issues. Yes, yes. Yeah, you're already just anticipating the next step. These are things we have to do. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunately have to do them, but we know it improves the patient experience, makes them more likely to be able to follow through on our treatment plans, which we'd hope will lead to better outcomes for them. Absolutely. And on, on the subject of outcome, your own impression of, of all this, has this prior authorization burden affected patient outcomes? For sure. I mean, we see patients who end up on, on therapies that, in my opinion, are worse or don't even make sense for them. You, sometimes you get ridiculous suggestions from insurers, like you have a pregnant patient, you try and get azelaic acid for their acne rosacea because that's a relatively safe medicine in pregnancy. And they tell you, no, you've got to do step therapy with a retinoid. And you say, the patient's pregnant, like, what are you doing here? So, and that it can be really frustrating and, and could probably lead to worse outcomes for patients, depending on multiple issues that can happen there. And certainly when we see patients have to go through step therapy, they often end up on treatments we know are less effective or less safe, but are less expensive. And, and they're basically being forced into those based on cost alone as the determining factor rather than any clinical considerations. And that's definitely going to lead to worse outcomes. And as we've discussed, non-adherence, of course, primary non-adherence for patients just can't get the medicine at all is going to lead to worse outcomes because they're not being treated. And then they're going to get disillusioned and frustrated with the healthcare system. 
And that's going to maybe affect their care elsewhere as well. If they have a bad experience with medicines with their dermatologist, it might change how they interact with their primary care doctor. Absolutely. The Academy seems to be devoting a lot of attention to uh, various aspects of practice, and they've developed resources on the website. That includes uh, a special prior authorization page on the Practice Management Center website of the AED. Are you familiar with some of the resources on there, Dr. Barbieri? Yes, I am. Unfortunately, in our practice, we don't have to, to use these that much because we do have that dedicated prior authorization team. But this is something that's been developed largely through the Drug Pricing and Transparency Task Force to help our members handle prior authorizations. And, and the nice thing about it is these letters, they're written by people who are experts in these medications. So, you know, the bullous pemphigoid one is written by people who treat hundreds of bullous pemphigoid patients and have lots of experience getting rituximab, for instance. And so you can know that these have information and language in them that is used successfully by many of our experts in the community to help patients get access to these medications. So it's a great resource. It's on the American Academy of Dermatology website. It's easy to use and access. You just put in some basic information. It basically prints out the letter completely done for you, and you can send it off to the insurance company. So it's a nice resource to have. It is largely focused branded medications. And unfortunately, a lot of prior authorizations these days are, are what I would consider to be like junk prior authorizations for generic first-line treatments where you're getting prior authorizations for clovetazole for contact dermatitis or trenoin as a first-line treatment for acne or 5-fluorouracil for actinic keratosis, a treatment that we know is cost-effective and reduces overall total cost of care. Patients yeah. aren't able to access because of prior authorizations and high deductibles, which is a real shame because we're doing our patients a disservice both clinically and our health system a disservice financially because of these prior authorizations. So that's an area that we probably need to build out more resources as these prior authorizations just broaden out to almost everything, or we need to work from an advocacy standpoint on focusing prior authorizations really on their real goal, which is about trying to ensure appropriate use of medication rather than as a blanket barrier to access care, which is unfortunately how they're being applied by many insurance companies these days. Yes, yes. I have to say the Practice Management Center's page, it's information on prior authorization is so incredibly helpful. It captures so much of what we've talked about this morning, everything you've just mentioned. And I agree, the letter generator itself for me has been so incredibly helpful. It generates a very helpful document that you can further tweak. It has references in there and it just really simplifies the process. Something that's quite burdensome as we've discussed, but it makes it so much simpler when you have to appeal a denial with a letter. And I agree with you. The website's also helpful because it goes beyond just addressing the immediate problem of how do you get around this prior authorization? It has the resources on how we as dermatologists can advocate for our patients, how we can change this system. Exactly. Well, I've really appreciated this conversation with you, Dr. Barbieri. Do you have any general advice for our listeners on how to have success in the prior authorization process? I think it's important to try to get to know your local insurers and their practices, some of which are kind of idiosyncratic with respect to their formularies, because mm -hmm. that can definitely save you and your patients headaches. For instance, our local Medicaid insurer, where we are, they have a very strong preference in terms of topical steroids that are high potency for betamethasone, and particular betamethasone ointment, not cream, uh, rather than other high potency steroids. So knowing that fact and knowing your patient's insurance will then 
you know, I, I'm happy to prescribe betamethasone instead of pobetazole or halbetazole. And then I know that the first time I prescribe it, there's not going to be a prior authorization. It's going to get approved. I'm not going to have to worry about going back and forth with the patient. And so trying to learn those preferences over time goes a long way in both saving you as a doctor time down the road because you're not having to do as many prior authorizations or switch things around because of step therapy and gives your patients a more streamlined experience. So although it can be work to try to go look at your local insurer's formularies, getting a sense of how they feel about some of the common biologics or topical therapies that we prescribe can save you time and improve your patient's experiences. And I hope one day that that stuff gets more integrated into the electronic health record, or we come up with things like the idea of just prescribing. Like often I just wanna prescribe a high potency topical steroid, but what if I could just send that prescription and whatever one is the cheapest or the best covered is the one the patient gets. You know, something like that could help our patients as well. Or I want to prescribe an IL-17 inhibitor. I don't have really strong preference about which one. I just want one in that class. So those yeah. would be other ways to try to help with this problem. Maybe not as, as ideal, but a workaround that we could explore as well, just thinking about how we can improve this problem going forward. Absolutely. And then, as you mentioned, also helpful for our own experiences is having dedicated staff to help offload the burden from our already busy clinical schedule so we can focus on taking care of patients. And then having dedicated staff who just know the ins and outs and they know some of the idiosyncrasies of this process. Well, that said, I appreciate all of your time and expertise. And our hope is that uh, some of these tips will, will help our listeners with the prior authorization processes and if you have any questions, I refer any of our listeners to the Practice Management Center of the AAD website. And that can be found at www.aad.org slash prior authorization. Wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.